The Sound of Young America's trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was supported by Phillips Cinema, celebrating short film online at facebook.com slash Cinema. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We just got back from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. A lot of cool stuff went down while we were in Austin, but there was one thing that I was bragging about to everyone who would listen when we got back. We met Lemmy. Yes, Lemmy, the legendary frontman of Motorhead. And he was super, you know, Lemmy-ish. In a few minutes, we'll get to my interview with Lemmy the Man, and in just a minute, we'll talk with the directors of Lemmy the Film. It premiered at South by Southwest. Here's Lemmy in Lemmy describing what makes his bass guitar playing so different. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, where my guests Greg Oliver and Wes Orshosky have just premiered their new documentary, Lemmy. It's about one of the most iconic figures in the history of rock and roll. Lemmy, the front man of uh, uh, the metal band Motorhead. Um, Gentlemen, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, man. Great to be here. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess, based on uh, gazing upon you, that it's possible that you guys were Motorhead fans before you started making this movie. You know, actually, dude, um, we... um I was kind of a casual fan. and uh, Same here, man. I yeah. was only an Ace of Spades fan, believe it or yeah. not. I'm a massive fan now, but... How, how, did it, how did it come to you then? Well, I mean, I grew up a huge metalhead. I mean, I'm the kind of dork who, who uh, videotaped uh, uh, Headbangers Ball when, you know, on Saturday nights when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. And, and, but the funny thing is, man, Motorhead was kind of like too much for me, man. They were too extreme. They were too heavy. And it was only over the years since then that I've really started to love them. But when we decided to do this film, Lemmy had just released uh, his solo record, uh, not a solo record, but a record by his side project, The Headcat, which is a rockabilly band that, you know, that covers like Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly. And, uh, man, I was really falling in love with that. And it really shows you the depth and it shows you where Lemmy comes from. I mean, he... As someone says in the film, as Henry Rollins says in the film, he remembers a time before there was rock and roll when there was just Rosemary Clooney records, you know? And uh, his, the music he grew up on was Buddy Holly and Carl Perkins, and he loves that stuff to this day. In yeah. some ways, the, the movie is kind of a, a tribute to the spirit of rock and roll, just in the, in the same way that Lemmy's life is almost a tribute to the spirit of rock and roll. Exactly right. When we got started on this project, I'm, I was never like a heavy metal fan or a metal fan, and and I didn't know how much I would enjoy the music because, you know, you're going to live with this thing for years while you're working on it. And you get into it, and like Lemmy says when he comes up on stage, he's like, we, we're our motorhead, we play rock and roll. He means it. It's actually rock and roll. It's just really fast, really loud, really heavy. But it's music that I, could, I, I was surprised how much I fell in love with it. It's just like r- really loud, fast, 
rock and roll. I don't, maybe I don't even know what metal is because I think this is just loud, fast rock and roll. And I think Lemmy says the same thing. Motorhead is one of the most misunderstood bands in rock music. People think, they, they see the t-shirt. They, they see Lemmy and they have this gnarly image of what, what the band is and what they sound like. But you go to a Motorhead show, man, and there is real groove to the music. I mean, just in the same way that ACDC is kind of a boogie band. In a way, it's, they're kind of like an R&B boogie band. Motorhead, there's deep groove to the music. They'll play a song tonight, one of my favorite songs, called Just Because You Got the Power, That Don't Mean You Got the Right. It is one of the nastiest, tastiest, grooviest things you'll ever hear, you know? Let's talk a little bit about Motorhead's sort of special place in the rock pantheon. For, for folks out there who aren't fans of Motorhead or aren't fans of heavy rock in general, how would you characterize what makes Motorhead, this band that has had basically one minor hit so consequential so important well i mean here's the thing a lot of people especially a lot of people coming up right now young people i mean i think i got a better understanding of it when i was a teenager and metallica was blowing up i mean uh, metallica was a band their their posters were on my my wall my, my bedroom wall and you know at that time there was no internet so you had to read things like circus magazine or kerrang or hit parader and when you read those things you know james hatfield said you know, my favorite band was Motorhead. The reason why we're here today is Motorhead. That's what people don't understand. This is something that we, we get across in the film. There would be no Slayer. There would be no Anthrax. There would be no Megadeth. There would be no Metallica without Lemmy. Lemmy is this guy who, um, in public, is all about his iconography. I mean, this is a guy who, as you document in the film, sort of hates Nazism and wears an iron cross because he's into the iconography the power of the iconography and he has this iconic facial hair and he wears these custom boots and and you have these shots that I I was surprised to just see him just kind of walking around the neighborhood in his Lemmy outfit like he is this iconic figure Um, and I'm sure you guys knew all, all about that when you decided to make this movie um what did you find that you didn't know about? What, what were the things that were behind that wall? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of surprises. Lemmy is like an onion. There's definitely many layers, right? Um, one thing that, I mean, if you know Motorhead, then you know this, but if you only know the image of Motorhead, you don't know that he's a huge fan of, like, girl groups and, like... Um, Musicians like Pat Benatar, you know, there's a moment in the film where he's buying a Pat Benatar record, right? And uh, he loves he loves harmonies. It doesn't matter how corny or how cheesy they're like a pop song. If it's got a good harmony, he loves it. He, like good chorus, he loves it. And I so some of his musical taste, you know, it was uh, specifically got kind of interesting. And the more and more I learned, like the first two weeks we were on the road with him, every day he listened to George Harrison's greatest hits every night before he went on. I mean, he's a huge Beatles guy, right? People don't understand how deep this guy is, you know? And I think he doesn't like the fact that uh, everyone says he's much nicer than everybody thinks that he is. I mean, the dude's actually really nice. If you don't know him, if you just know the, the image and the music, he comes off as this very tough, like, monster of rock, you know, booze, you know, women chasing, booze drinking. I mean, he does all that, but it's not, he's, he, the guy is, it's, he's like the most respectful person I've, that one of the most respectful people when it comes to women. He's, he's not like just trying to screw every woman. He's actually a very charming, I don't know how to say, I don't know what he's I'm trying to say. He's a ladies' man. Yeah, he's, he's a, a ladies', ladies man, man, but he's, he's he smooth. Was, 
Yeah, he's smooth, and, but he's, it's a very respectful thing because he was raised by his mom and his grandma. Yeah, compassionate. And you know? I think I was surprised by that, and I was surprised by the fact when he talks about drugs, it's like it all started because he needed. I guess when they were first touring, they would do like 50 shows in 51 days. He's like, how can any human being do that without some kind of drug to help them? And so then next thing you know, you get hooked on it, and then you're doing it your whole life. So it's like these kind of things surprise me. It's not just like he's doing it for a lifestyle. It's like these things became part of him. I, I thought it was really interesting. I was reading I was reading an interview with him from the mid-'80s or something like that, and he, he talked about how he felt like uh, writing songs about the devil and writing songs about drugs was somehow cheating um, because it was maybe dishonest or not true to the spirit of rock and roll. And so much of metal is so often about performance. Like, there are, there are so many types of metal that, you know, whether it's, you know, glam metal in the 80s or whether it's even, you know, uh, dark metal, black metal now that's about, you know, crazy costumes and, you know, eating glass or committing suicide or whatever. Um, and he seems so opposed to that. It's amazing that he's become an icon for um, this world that's about that's about sort of enactments of ideas. It's true, man. You go like we seen we were on tour with like Alice Cooper, and there's all these theatrics and costumes and all this thing, you know, face paint and all this stuff happening. That's very people love that. They eat it up. But when you go to a Motorhead show, man, the biggest special effect they had was usually a fire extinguisher going off behind the drum kit. It's just like Turn they the come out, solo. they play rock and roll, and if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, just get out of there. Like that's how their attitude is, and that's what I I love about it, man. It's so real from the music to the way he is and. Hopefully that came across in the film. We tried to just be as honest as we could. We didn't really come into the film with an angle, I don't think. No. Most people say, what's your angle? I'm like, we don't know. And we felt stupid for two years not having an angle. And then it finally found its own itself as we edited it you know, over the past like, six, eight, eight months. And it, I think the film is as real as it could get. You know, there's nothing, there's no, uh, nothing fake in the film. It's all, everything that happened is real. And I think we just like, let Lemmy speak for himself and... Hopefully that comes across. Tell me how this film and the subject of this film dovetails with being here at South by Southwest and premiering here at South by Southwest. Last night, you were talking about how you couldn't imagine premiering it anywhere else. We love Austin, man. Uh, to be honest with you, there's bigger festivals and there's more prestigious festivals like Sundance. But from the beginning, man, we always wanted to uh, premiere it here. You know, music, Austin is, is an incredible music town. It's a Lemmy town. It's a Motorhead town, you know. And uh, we love this town, and we always wanted to be here, right here in Stubbs. We wanted the band to be playing at Stubbs. It's like, you know, I, I kind of geeked out a little bit last night and said that it's a dream come true, but every, every, the last two days have been a dream come true, and they will continue to be tonight. You know? yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of other festivals that have more international buyers at them, and we get a lot of advice from people saying, you shouldn't premiere here, you should do this, this, and this. But like for us... This, this project was just so like personal to Wes and I and to Lemmy. We wanted to have fun, man. He wanted to just have the most fun you can when this film was done. And we love Austin. We've been here a couple times. I'm from Houston, so this is such a rock and roll town. And we knew that Lemmy would actually come here because he loves Austin. You know, I think it would have been a lot harder to get him to Park City and get Motorhead to chill out in Park City. You know, like, you can see him walking the streets here and hanging out with folks and drinking at bars, you know, but I don't think he'd want to do that in Park City. I mean, no offense. You don't think it's a he'd great want to hit the moguls? No. No, I mean, there's like, you know. So anyway, so we, we were just so excited to make this festival happen for our film, and thank God it worked out, man. Well, uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Greg Oliver and Wes Warshawski are the directors of the new documentary, Lemmy, which just premiered here at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas.
Before we talk to metal legend Lemmy, here's some of his signature hit with his band Motorhead, Ace of Spades. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Um, we're at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, uh, in the basement of the legendary Stubbs, where um, outside they're setting up amplifiers and uh, huge stacks of amplifiers uh, for my guest and his band, Motorhead. Lemmy is one of the most iconic figures in uh, rock and roll, a yeah, man. A small who... Russian religious portrait. <laughs> <laughs> A man who bridges the gap between punk rock and, and metal and a, a rock and roll legend. Lemmy, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here. Thank you. I, I, I was really touched um, in watching the film uh, Lemmy about you last night um, to see you talk about first encountering rock and roll in the 50s. Right. Um, do you remember what the first rock and roll records you heard were? No, don't, to be quite honest, I don't. There's probably a guy called Tommy Steele who was an English rocker, you know, like probably him. Or Bill Haley, probably. Rock around the clock, you know, one of those. Rock and roll was this huge cultural turning point. What what was significant about it to you as a kid? Like, what what made it, it make was you... mine. And nobody else liked it. My <laughs> mum and dad hated it, so it was obviously good, you know. Did you? Did you? Did you? Was it something that your that your peers were into, that your friends were into, or, or yeah, was it well, a few of them, you know. It's uh, it's weird, you know. Things go in cycles. I've seen the same thing happen about five times, you know. Rock and roll is dead. No, it's not. You know, like, and so we come around to another different kind of rock and roll. Now there's the original, then there was the Beatles, then there was the um, San Francisco sound, then there was like punk, you know. It always comes around again. We're waiting for another one right now. It should be a, a rejuvenation of it soon. It's not happened yet. People think it's already happened. It's not. It's going to be a new sensation first. You're English, but you spent a lot of your adolescence in Wales. Yeah. Um, was that difficult for you? Was it, was it weird to be the English kid? Well, it taught me how to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and it also taught me the futility of fighting because it doesn't matter how hard you are, there's always somebody harder. And it's all luck anyway, you know, so I just give it up after I got out of Wales. There's no point, you know. But, you know, you know how kids are. When I first got there, I had to fight about the first 20 kids, you know, the top echelon, you know, see what I was made of, you know. What was your record? Oh, I lost a lot. (laughs) I mean, you're surrounded by the enemy, you know. (laughs) It's not your best environment for best foot forward, you know what I mean? 
do you think that was part of why you became uh, a rock and roller, wanting to have something that, um, you know, that was really yours and that you could, you know? Well, it's a funny thing. The English kids, I mean, I went to a, a grammar school later, which was a lot bigger, and there was some English kids there. And we seemed to like rock and roll more than the Welsh kids did then. I don't know if it's probably changed now. You know. A lot of great bands come out of Wales since, but not from where I come from. <laughs> you you were a teenager when you first saw the Beatles, right? Yeah. Well, 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 tell me tell me where and, and when. What playing? Yeah. Nineteen sixty, I guess, or something like that. Fifty nine. I got my first guitar, I think, and then. Uh, I mean, we just played around the local, you know, births, marriages and deaths, you know, sort of thing. You don't get much funeral work, I'll give you that. But we, uh, yeah, we, we'd play anyway, you know, just to play, like, you know, when you're a kid, you do that. Wouldn't do it now. Money up front, please. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a song from one of Lemmy's earliest bands, Hawkwind. It's called Lost John. Hawkwind was the band that you were a member of in the uh, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. 71 I joined, 75 I got fired, yeah. And uh, Hawkwind were, as described in the movie, especially sort of an acid band. Oh, yeah. Um, And you don't seem seem like an acid kind of guy, but maybe I'm mistaken. Were you then? (laughs) Oh, yeah, man. I mean, we used to take them like dolly mixes. I mean... They said acid didn't work two days in a row, but we found out if you doubled the dose, it did. You know? <laughs> so that's what, I mean, the whole Hendrix store was tripping. Everybody, the crew, the, you know, the, the all the bands, everybody. I didn't know anybody who wasn't doing acid then. Sixty-seven. It was just that's how it was. You know, it was the same over here too. You know, how, how did how did it affect um, your sense of making art? Well, I haven't done any for a long time, but it's really, uh, I think, it's a beneficial thing to have done it. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who did it and never came back, you know. There's somewhere in the basket weaving factory, you know, which is kind of unfortunate, but it did very well for me. It taught me a lot about myself and it made me very self-aware. You know? what, what did it teach you? Oh, I don't know. You can't describe. It's just uh, it changed my perspective on more or less everything. Because you're, you're helpless in the face of an acid onslaught, you know. It just goes boom, you know. So you just have to grasp the mane and ride it out, you know. It's good. It's, uh, it takes all your control away, which is very good for some people. I want to ask you a little bit Oops. about, uh, about um, uh, the aesthetics of your playing. Um, you play the bass uh, in a way that no one else does, um, except maybe people who are trying to sound like <coughs> Lemmy from Motorhead. Not many of them. How did, how did you come to... First of all, d- describe what the difference is for these well, public radio people out strings. there. A, it's like I play it like a sitar in a way. I have an open string, a drone string, and play the notes on the next one up, you know. So as long as it's an E or A or D, I can do that, you know. And uh, I do a lot of chords, you know. So 
that's mainly what's different because I'm a guitar player turned bass player. You know. Well, when you started playing bass, what what did you want out of out of the sound that you were making? What what was your objective? I wanted ear splitting noise actually, <laughs> preferably in tune. But you know, if it's ear splitting enough, that doesn't matter either. No, I just wanted to be in a band, you know. Basically, I wanted to belong, you know. And Hawkwind was a great band, you know. I mean, I got up on stage. The guy said. Who plays bass? The bass player didn't show up, you know. It was a free show. And the, the guy says, who plays bass? And my mate who wanted me in the band to be his friend said, he does. I thought, bastard, you know. I never picked up a bass in my life, right? Never, even. And uh, I got up there, and Nick Turner, the sax player, was really helpful. He came across and he said, make some noises in E. This is called You Shouldn't Do That. And walked away again. None of that old-fashioned stuff like two verses solo, you know. Help you out. So, I mean, I must have done something right. I was with them four and a half years, you know. In terms of music, um, um, you actually got you got fired from Hawkwind. Yeah, no, I got fired from every band I was in, actually. <laughs> the only way I could stop being fired was to form my own band. You know, they can't find me out of this one. It's mine, you know. When you formed your own band, did you did you have, like, a, a plan, a scheme? Was there something that you thought, well, this is my yeah, band and see, it's going to be different in this plans. way? Every time you have a plan, it fucks up, you know, <laughs> completely. We... Uh, I, was, I wanted to be the MC5, basically, you know, five piece of the singer, and I was just going to be the bass player. And, of course, then the singer leaves, you know, because he can't stand the guitarist or something, you know, and off it went, you know, so I, I got stuck with the singing. And it just worked out that way. Now I, I couldn't imagine being just a sideman behind a singer anymore. I, mean, I could have then in Hawkwind. I used to do the high harmonies, just backing vocals, you know. You play in, in Motorhead in this incredibly ferocious style mm. um, what inspired you to do that in, in a time when you know even even bands that were loud like the who were were not ferocious the way that motorhead is well, the who were actually the who were always ferocious because townsend's nuts <laughs> and like Entwistle's nuts you know and, and mooney was definitely nuts you know they were always pretty vicious you know but like there's i know what you mean yeah there's a lot of live bands looking at their shoes you know, while they're playing, I, that's not the way I do it, you know. You've got, to be, you've got to let the audience know you're there, you know. Was that something that you chose for yourself? Like, did you think, this is what I want to be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see a lot of bands, and I've seen a lot of bands. I saw the Beatles at the Cabin, you know, before they got a record deal. And I saw the Stones early on, too, and I saw The Who a lot. And I saw Hendrix, because I was working for him. And it just told me that you've got to stand out. You've got to be a, a different... You've got to look different, right? Because who wants a band that looks like them? Come and show up interchangeable with the audience. That's not show business. That's not very entertaining. You know, anybody can buy a bloody plaid shirt and a pair of jeans, you know. That's not the story. You know, you have to be special, I think. I always customise everything as soon as I get it, you know. I was reading this interview that I, I was talking with uh, Greg and Wes about that, that was with you, and it was from the mid-1980s, 1986 or something yeah. like that. And you were talking about, you, you were, there was a, I think it was a metal magazine, you were talking to a, a metal dude, and he was talking about, you know, bands singing songs about, you know, you know riding lightning with the devil. Or No, we never wrote about the devil. <laughs> yeah. So, no. but in, in your reaction to him talking about that was that you felt like it was I think you said that it was felt like cheating or something like that oh well, it's too easy isn't it the devil you know ooh, you know and also people like Striper who sang about the Lord you know 
I think it's all bollocks. All I don't need the Lord or I don't need the devil either. I'm responsible for what I do, you know. You know, you can hold me up in front of the great desk in the sky at the end of it all. And I'll, I'll be quite happy to put my hand up for my actions, you know. You really opened up a lot for this documentary, um, sort yeah. of three years of your life. Um, Felt like five. <laughs> Everywhere well, you go, another camera comes around the corner, you know. What was it like? Did, did, you, have any, um, did you have any reservations about trusting the story of you to someone else? No, well, I got to see it before it went out, you know, so... Any glaring faux pas, I got to kill, you know. But it was okay, you know. I mean, they, they did very well, I think. Do you, do you permit yourself time for that kind of self-reflection? Like, do you, do you think back about what you've done and who you are? Not much. It's, with this game, you've got to be on top of the time, you know. You've got to be on top of where you are right now, you know. There's no room for... Well, when you had this problem before, I recall, you know, that's not good to you. This is this time, not that time. Something that I wondered it, it, as I was watching the movie was you've had such a, such a singular life, like such a commitment to being this, this thing that you are. This thing, yes, that's right. You that's know? Right, right, yeah. and, and I wonder if you, ever, if you ever imagine yourself, if you ever imagine yourself having lived a different life, if, if you ever think of... Well, I could have been a convict. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not qualified for anything, you see, anyway. I, I have no uh, diplomas in anything. I didn't graduate, you know, so I was expelled, you know, that was my graduation present. You know. So uh, this is one of the few things, there's this boxing and evangelism, right? <laughs> I don't fancy the other two, too much punishment. <laughs> you, uh, but I mean, if you, if, as I was watching the film, you know, I, I, looked, at the, I looked at the other guys from... Um, uh, the Rockin' Vickers, right. your, your first band. Um, and I don't know, maybe they're still touring as the Rockin' Vickers, but they didn't appear to be. No, they're not now, no. And, and I heard you talk about having to make a choice between being a rock and roll guy and having a family life. Well, if you have a family life, that usually kills the rock and roll half of it. Yeah. Know? Because you have to be at home, you know. With kids, but, and, but, but I never was married. You see, so. it seems like such a difficult life that you've chosen. The the relentlessness of it, the touring, and the it's a great life. I get to travel all around the world, sleep with women of all sizes, colours, and religious persuasions, and everybody there is happier than when I arrived. I mean, what better job is there than that? What do you think your life would be like if you retired? What would you do with yourself? Retired? I yeah. don't understand that. <laughs> why, why would you retire? What could possibly be better than this? You know, I haven't got any grandchildren to dandle on my knee and etc. You know, so I don't see why you would do that. Well, Lemmy, it's so kind of you to take the time to to talk to us. Thank you so Pleasure. much for being here. See you again. Uh, Lemmy Kilmister is the uh, legendary frontman of the band. Uh, Motorhead, they're playing tonight where we're recording at uh, Stubbs Barbecue in uh, Austin, Texas, here as part of South by Southwest. He's also the subject of the new documentary, Lemmy, which just premiered here. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking into Microphones. Our director and producer at South by Southwest was Nick White. 
Our videographer was Benjamin Harrison, and you can view absolutely 100% for free and share videos of all of our interviews on today's program and, indeed, all of our interviews at South by Southwest. Just visit us online at MaximumFun.org and click on The Sound of Young America. To take us out of the show, here's one more Motorhead hit, Hellraiser. I'm living on an endless road Around the world